Please open your Bibles to John chapter 8. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text this morning in the back of the bulletin. And this morning, we'll begin the final section of John 8. Um, We're going to deal with this in multiple parts because starting in verse 31 all the way through verse 59 is an extended exchange back and forth between Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jews who had believed in him, on the great day of the Feast of Booths. Um, It reaches its climax, both with the clarity of Jesus' self-revelation, before Abraham was, I am, and the equally clear response of the Jews. They picked up stones to throw at him. And so we we can't really deal with this piece by piece. We've got to deal with this as a whole, even as it will take us a number of weeks to get through it. This morning we'll only be looking at part for the first six verses of this section, but I'd like to begin by reading um, John eight thirty one to 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I have not come on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, 
as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Lord God, what a majestic passage of scripture this is. What clarity our Lord uses to speak of his deity. And what equal clarity he uses to unmask the evil of these unbelieving Jews. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to see and to hear, that we would rightly apprehend what it means to be Christ's disciple, that you would give faith where there is none, that you would strengthen faith where it is weak, that you would glorify yourself in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to consider a question that I think has been reverberating through John's gospel. What is the nature or quality of of saving faith. What does it mean to believe in a saving way? How can you know that you have believed savingly? That's a question that's been ringing in John's gospel. No other gospel has such precision focus on the issue of believe, 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 believe. Ringing through the gospel, believe, believe. Most notably at the end in in John's thesis statement where he writes... Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's gospel is crystal clear. There's only one condition for salvation. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And yet, I think in our day and age, What it means to believe is often confusing. What does it mean? How do do you know if you believe? In John's gospel, we've seen people who say they believe defect and fall away, most notably in chapter 6, where the majority of his disciples departed and abandoned him. Well, now in this passage, with clarity, Jesus speaks to people who make a profession of faith. He gives us a clear insight in one of the components of saving faith. In fact, your first point here is we're going to look at the hallmark of true faith and discipleship. The hallmark of true faith and discipleship. Don't miss this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples. So let's consider the audience. The verse begins with, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And what we're reminded of 
is that we're still on that great day of the feast. All the way back in 737, this diatribe, this discourse is set up. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He's in the temple. It's the end of the Feast of Booths. A week-long harvest celebration where the Jews basically got a week of vacation. They camp out in homemade shelters. They eat, they drink, they worship the Lord. They celebrate that he's once again given rains, caused the crop to produce. They're reminded of his provision in the past, and they're looking forward with confidence in his provision in the future. And on this great day, Jesus has already stood up twice and invited those who are there to come to him. He stood up and he said, if anyone believes in me, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. He stood up and said in John 8, in verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then there's a challenge about his authority and the challenge about whether he has the right if it's right of him to testify concerning himself and he reminds them his father's testifying and coming out of that, we see in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus has been having an ongoing discussion with the Jews in Jerusalem made up of the Pharisees. They were a subset we were looking at earlier and just inhabitants of Jerusalem are those visiting. This is one of the three mandatory feasts that every able-bodied Jewish man had to attend every year. But now we're told that in this milieu, some of them, many of them believed. And so Jesus turns his attention to address them specifically. Don't miss this. This is what's part of what's critical about this passage. Point A, the audience. The audience. So, this is causality, because many believed. That's what sets up what Jesus says. So, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. This is a remark not at all the Jews, but specifically at those who had professed or come to some level of faith in Jesus. That, that's why this is so helpful and so clear of a passage. This isn't simply something he says broadly to everyone. This is what he says to those who believed in him. Jesus intentionally speaks to this subset of the Jews. And so it's this subset that will speak back to him. Now, pretty soon, we'll be back to talking to the Jews. But for now, Jesus is speaking to the Jews who had believed in him. And let me pause for a and tell you what I'm intending to do this morning. I'm, I'm going to ignore largely the response of the Jews. We'll look at that next week. What I want to look at, strung together, is the statements Jesus makes to the Jews who had believed in him. I want to look at them isolated from everything else. We'll consider what the Jews say only insofar as it sets up what Jesus says. This is Jesus' address to people making a profession of faith, people who in the last few minutes have made some profession of faith. What does Jesus say to them? What would Jesus say to us? We're just going to look at that. And then next week and the weeks after, we'll consider the response of the Jews and how this all ties together. I just want to look at what does our Lord have to say to baby faith, to new faith in him? What does he say? And what clarity does that give us? Maybe another way of thinking about this. What might you say? On Wednesday night in our adventure club, you're a leader in one of the groups and one of the children says, you know what? I, I think I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What, what might you say to them? Parents, what would you say to your children when they make some profession of faith? 
What would you say to a worker or a friend if, if you were sharing the gospel and they made some profession of faith? Now, I'm not suggesting that what Jesus says here is the only thing to say to them. I think there are probably many good, helpful, edifying things you could say to them. My challenge to you is, would you in any way be comfortable saying what Jesus says? Because if you're not, something in our thinking has to shift. Something in our thinking has to change. So I want, I want to highlight the point. Jesus isn't just speaking broadly. The text makes it clear. He is speaking to the subset of people who believed in him, and it's their recent faith that is the impetus for this. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So, therefore, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, their recent faith is the cause of why he speaks to them. What does he say to them? What does he say to them? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. I want to pause, make one other point emphatically here. John's gospel is clear on this point. Faith in Jesus is the only condition for salvation. Faith in Jesus is the only condition for salvation. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. John's gospel is clear on that. Probably most famously, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have read the end of John's gospel, John 20, verse 30 and 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In two weeks, we'll have our Reformation Sunday where we'll celebrate the, the recapturing, the reclarifying of the gospel and, and the key central doctrine of justification by faith alone. But there's a danger, and your next point is this, that even though absolutely, amen, we are saved by faith and faith alone in Christ, John's gospel makes it equally clear that not everything that can be called faith saves. So faith alone saves, but not everything that can be called faith saves. James tells us the demons, in a sense, believe. That's, that's biblical. Do the demons believe? Yes, they do. And they tremble, and they perish, but turn back in John to John chapter 2. We see our first example. So what I'm suggesting to you is John is simultaneously emphasizing justification by faith alone. John probably emphasizes and repeats that more than any other gospel. And at the same time, John is trying to clarify what does it mean to believe. And he does that by showing us in at least two instances, and I think three, that he's willing to call something faith that isn't saving anybody. The first time we come across this is at the end of chapter 2. This is, of course, the setup for Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is going to typify what we're reading here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Pause. That is the exact formula of what is written in chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the reader sees the exact same formula, that they believed in his name, and you'd expect something like what you read in chapter 1, verse 12, to be followed. Jesus gave them the right to become children of God, which sets up some cognitive dissonance when instead we read in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Huh? And then, as Nicodemus exemplifies, in the very next few verses, a man shows up. He believes Jesus is from God. He believes some things about Jesus. He's seen miracles. He's seen signs. And yet, 
by the midpoint of the discourse with Nicodemus, it becomes clear he does not believe. Look at 3.12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus does come to faith. There's no question. He is not a believer here. Jesus says so. He says to Nicodemus, you do not believe. So, Nicodemus then is, I think, a picture, and that passage at the end of chapter 2 is setting up Nicodemus. Well, here we get the clearest one. Here we get the clearest example. John could not be clearer. Look at verse 30 of chapter 8. As he was saying these things, many believed in him, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And in a matter of four verses, he's going to tell these Jews who had believed in him, they're sons of their father, the devil. Look, just read it with me. Watch. There's no break as it goes back and forth. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. They, who's the they? The Jews who had believed in him, who Jesus just spoke to. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, the Jews who had believed in him, no break. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you, Jews who had believed in him, are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you, you Jews who had believed in him. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. Grammatically, there's no way around this. And so to quote D.A. Carson... In John's gospel, there's believing and there's believing. And so John, by setting up this tension, is raising the question that if if there's something you and I can do, these Jews can do, that John can call, Scripture can call believing in Jesus, and if they can remain sons of the devil, getting clarity then on what exactly is meant by believe. What is the faith that saves? I don't want to believe like these people do. And I think that's one of the reasons why John has so many different ways of speaking about faith. Let me just give you some. I I made a list. In John 1, faith is like receiving to all who did receive him. In John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, faith is like looking to an object on a pole lifted up. In John 3, 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light. Faith is like a doing and a coming to the light, a doing what is true and coming to the light. In John 4.10, with the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. Faith is like asking for a drink to quench thirst. John 5.39-40, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. Faith is like a coming to Jesus. John 6.40, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. Faith is like looking to Jesus in faith. John six fifty three. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Faith, saving faith, is like eating and drinking something. And we've considered all of this in our pre- previous weeks. John seven seventeen. if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. His faith is bound up in a desire to please God and do his will. John seven thirty seven. on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Saving faith is like coming to Jesus and drinking. 
John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Saving faith is like following Jesus. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Saving faith involves believing Jesus is God. Notice, notice the many different ways John has of speaking of faith. So even though he's emphasizing you've got to believe, you've got to believe, you're only saved by believing, he's given us a dozen or more ways of speaking about faith to help give us clarity on what it means, which is why I find it a particularly unhelpful symptom of American Christianity that the predominant way we speak of salvation, at least in my experience, is entirely unbiblical. I, I, I can only speak autobiographically, people I've spoken to, but the overwhelming majority of people I know who are saved speak of their salvation as, I asked Jesus into my heart, or I accepted Jesus. Neither of those are biblical. And if what you mean by them is biblical, praise God. It's not wicked to say that. But when the Bible gives us such a rich panoply of metaphors, language to use, the fact that we've adopted terms that aren't found in Scripture, I don't think is a good development. It, it makes room for the possibility that we can slowly have our meaning drift. Without The nice thing about biblical terms is when we use them, if they start to drift in their meaning, we can go back to the Bible and look at them and say, hey, when, when you say this, do you mean what Scripture means by it? The danger of extra-biblical terms is they can mean whatever we want them to mean. Talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We talked about missions. Missions isn't a biblical term, so part of what we have to do when we consider missions is, well, what do we want to mean by missions? It's no use asking the question, what does the Bible mean by missions? Because it's not in the Bible. Doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. It just means the, move, the meaning can move. And, and I think the tendency in the West is for believing and faith to weaken into some sort of one-time decision and you write your name in your Bible and you never look back because you asked Jesus into your heart. You accepted him. It's right there, July 12th, 1989. And it doesn't matter what comes after that. It doesn't matter what your life looks like after that because you made a decision because you asked Jesus into your heart. Our Lord's instruction to people who had just believed obliterates such thinking. This is one of the most important truths you can internalize. This is one of the most important gospel truths we can understand. What does Jesus say to people who had just believed? He's not speaking to everyone else. He's just speaking to the believers. And what he says to them is, and here's point B, the condition, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's what he says to them. I'm not saying this is the only thing you can say to a new believer. But if you're uncomfortable saying this to a new believer, be more like Jesus and get comfortable. That's, that's what I'm saying. The condition, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now we know from reading ahead that this belief is spurious, at least in the overwhelming majority of them. He's able to tell the same people they're sons of the devil. They're going to try to kill him a little later. So we know in this case, he's speaking to a faith that is fickle, temporal, temporary, non-saving. And so he tells these people who've come somewhere, they're, they're distinct from the rest of them. They've come to believe something about Jesus that they need to hold fast. They need to persevere. They need to abide. Abide, remain, continue in my word. That's, that's, that's what faith does. 
We're not saved by abiding, but saving faith abides. That's, that's the point. Now, when Jesus says his word, I believe he means his teaching, his instructions, his commands. His, and this ties into, if you turn back to Deuteronomy 18, what I think is, if not the predominant, one of two predominant ways of looking at Jesus in John's gospel. In John's gospel, we know from John the Baptist, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice for sins raised up on the cross, taking upon his shoulders our guilt, our shame, our wickedness. But I think just as emphasized in John, if not more, is Jesus as the prophet. Remember when they questioned John the Baptist? He's baptizing in chapter one. They said, are you the prophet? And we've looked at this again and again and again and again. Well, Deuteronomy 18 sets up this messianic expectation. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses, in a series of final addresses he gives to Israel before they cross the Jordan and he dies, writes, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And skip down to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that I will speak, that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. What's the one response you must give to the prophet like Moses that God raises up? You need to listen to him. What happens if you don't listen to him? You're, you're going to be accountable to God himself. When Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and his glory is revealed and Peter and James and John see it and Moses and Elijah are present, what does God the Father say? This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. What's the last thing he says? Listen to him. Turn back to John 6. I'll show you where John has emphasized this. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 Verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. You see, they made the connection. God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. What did Moses do? He mediated the manna in the wilderness. He fed the people of Israel the bread from heaven in the wilderness. This man's just fed us in the wilderness. They make the connection. This is indeed the prophet. And then as they follow Jesus across the sea to Capernaum, he makes it clear to them, you didn't really get it. You just want another meal. And that becomes explicit when in chapter 6, verse 60, remember, what's the one thing you're to do to the prophet? You listen, which means receive his teaching. 660, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is how John frames the defection of Jesus' disciples, how Jesus goes from vast crowds to a small handful of people. They can't listen to what he's saying. It's too hard. What characterizes, sets apart the few who remain? Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What's the difference between those who stay and those vast majority who go? The vast majority can't listen. It's too hard. They don't like it. Peter, you've got the words of life. Back in John 8, 
what is Jesus says is the hallmark of saving faith and true discipleship. It's abiding and remaining in his word. This is the first truth he tells the people who have just made a profession of faith. Abiding in Jesus' word, point one, is not optional. Abiding in Jesus' word is not optional. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to say, maybe, and I've heard this said before, maybe Jesus is only describing the requirements of discipleship. Maybe, what if, what if these people are already saved? Because it says they believed. And all Jesus is doing, I've heard this before, is saying, now that you're saved, let's become a disciple. And how do you become a disciple? You abide in his word. Nope. Because the alternative is not being a saved non-disciple. The alternative, the alternative is verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And how is Jesus able to identify that their father is the devil? Verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Why, why would they do that? Because my word finds no place in you. Jesus knows who their daddy is because his word finds no place in them. There's, there's no sitting on the fence on this one. You abide in his word and you are truly his disciple or his word finds no place in you and your father is the devil. He makes this same point again in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say, he says to them? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Then again in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. What is, what is the repeated litmus test? Shibboleth here. What do you do with Jesus' word? I would submit to you that's largely been the litmus test throughout the whole gospel. What do, you, what do you do with Jesus' word? Do you choke on it? Do you spit it out? You run from it? You leave it? You ignore it? Or do you receive it? Remain in it? Keep it? That's what Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him. That's the condition abide and abiding is not optional it's not for disciples only point two abiding in jesus word confirms your salvation i want to i want to guard against one error he doesn't say if you abide in my word you will be my disciples there are future tense verbs here they're not here there's a state of being it's not if you abide in Jesus' teaching, then at some point in the future you will become saved in his disciple. Nobody he's saying is the one who abides in my word is the one who is my disciple. And then the future tense verbs come in. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Future. Here he's just equating. How do I identify disciples? They're, they're remainers and abiders in his word. That's the point. Abiding in Jesus' word confirms your salvation. Abiding in his word confirms your salvation. Point three, equally clear in this passage, rejecting Jesus' word confirms your damnation. Rejecting Jesus' word confirms your damnation. We've seen that. I know who your father is because you, my word finds no place in you. Why do you not understand what I say, verse 43? Because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Again, there's, there's no sitting on the fence on this one. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He's come, and you have to account to God for what you do with his teaching. As Deuteronomy 
18.19 says, whoever will not listen to it will have to account to God. Whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's it. Those are the two teams. That's the dividing line. And that's what Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Point four then, synthesizing this, saving faith then will and must persevere in Christ's words. Saving faith will and must persevere, continue, abide, remain in Christ's words. That's, that's the meaning here. It's, it's the hallmark. It's the identifying characteristic of saving faith. How do you know where you've met a disciple, a child of God? They abide in Christ's word. How do you know the sons of the devil? They don't abide in Christ's word. His word finds no place in them. That's, that is the issue. It's not find the people who ask Jesus into their heart. It's not what he says. Find the people who abide in Christ's word, who remain in Christ's word. That's the hallmark. And this is something Jesus is not shy about saying. I'll give you some examples. In Matthew 10, brother will, dev- will be delivered over to death. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father is child. The children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is quite clear that persevering to the end is an essential, necessary, non-negotiable element of salvation and saving faith. Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Mark 13, 13, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In two weeks, we're to consider the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And there's two ditches we're to look at. And we're to look at the Reformation and perseverance of the saints. On the one side is the Roman Catholic doctrine that you can move in and out of states of grace, that you can, you can lose your salvation, as it were. You can be in a state of grace one day where if you were to die, you'd go to heaven or purgatory, and you can die in another state on another day and perish. That's one error. But I think the American Western error is not the perseverance of the saints, but rather... Once saved, always saved. And if by that you mean, there's truth to it, once saved, always saved. But if by that you mean, make a decision today, pray a prayer today, and have no consideration or interest in what you do for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. I've, I've heard this said. You could, you could deny Christ. You could go join a cult. But if you had a moment of real faith, that's the error on the other side. And so I'd bring us back to, and I'd focus, and I'd highlight Jesus' teaching here. Saving faith, true faith, abides, perseveres, continues in his teaching. Jesus is clear on this point. There's no ambiguity here. This is what he said to the Jews who had believed in him. I'd argue this is John's theme for his whole gospel. Keep believing. Be believing. A woodenly literal translation of John 3.16. I'll emphasize this. For God loved the world in this way that each one who is believing, it's not, it's not past tense, it's present, is believing. I've said to somebody else here, maybe a better way of saying once saved, always saved is once believing, always believing. Or true faith perseveres. You abide in Christ and his word. So that's the hallmark, true discipleship, the hallmark of true 
discipleship. And let's quickly look at the consequence of true faith and discipleship. The hallmark, the consequence of true faith and discipleship. We may not finish this this morning. That's fine. We're gonna be, that's part of why we're doing part one, part two, part three, working our way through this. Um, but I also know there's no Sunday schools after this, so the time we end is a little more flexible. Um, <laughs> the consequence of true faith. And, and, and I'll just pause, and again, part of the reason why I, I emphasize this so often and so hard... I was one of those people who was told, you're good, you're a believer. Why? Because I prayed a prayer when I was a little kid. And the Lord, and I view it as his kindness. I view it as his mercy that he let me wallow in my sin. He, he let it become clear to me and those who knew me I did not know God. And through that entire time where I was a drunkard and a profligate and immoral and godless, I could have told you, I did at times, because I liked being a smart aleck debater, I could have told you a absolutely orthodox gospel I could have I did I I was aware like the demons believe I loved my sin I didn't follow after Christ I did not abide in his word I didn't love his people but I knew the truth I mean I could recite the truth And and God brought me to salvation by showing me that the way I lived each and every day really demonstrated what I loved and what I believed and a bunch of well meaning people would have damned me to hell if I'd received their counsel. Don't worry about it. Don't get exercised. You're saved by faith and that works right. So it doesn't matter that you're getting drunk every day. It's unimportant. We're not saved by works, right? And I don't read my Bible. I don't go, that doesn't matter either. Only a Christian would wonder if they're a Christian. Again, not a verse to back that claim up, but I've heard that repeatedly as well. Find the verse that says that. I see verses that say, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13. And I see Jesus here telling people who just made a profession of faith, you must abide in my word. That's what he tells them. It's kind to tell that to people. It's not kind to soothe consciences and give false assurance. It just might make us feel a little better in the moment. So the consequence of true faith and discipleship, the consequence of true faith and discipleship, the condition is there in verse 31. What follows in the rest, the next few verses, are the consequence. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I'm going to skip over largely today their response. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? As Jesus then in 34 and 35 and 36 clarifies what he means by freedom. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So consequence, true faith and discipleship. Point A, you will know the truth, knowledge. You will know the truth. You will come to know Jesus. Jesus is, of course, the truth. And I don't think John or Jesus has any clear dichotomy between Jesus and his teaching. Jesus is the one who is truth. You will know the truth. You will know Jesus, and you will know the teaching of Jesus. You you will know him and his ethic. Or to use a, a different biblical category, you will come to have the mind of Christ. So Paul speaks in, Second, in 1 Corinthians 2. For who is understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Knowing the truth. Or as Paul writes in Galatians, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those 
that by nature are not God's, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless principles of the world? Knowledge. You will come to know Jesus. John fourteen six. Jesus says again unambiguously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, to the Father, except through me. You will come to know the truth. And for the believer, that is progressive. In the moment of faith, there's a knowledge of Jesus that is life-changing, but 22 years into my journey of faith, I'm still learning and knowing the truth more and more. This is future-looking. This is progressive. This is ongoing. I'm still coming to know more and more of the truth, coming to apply, to believe, to understand, to implement more and more of the truth. And point two, this is not just intellectual, but holistic. Knowing, I mean, if you go all the way back to Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Knowing, I think, has a much broader understanding of simple knowledge. It involves the morals, the affections. It's experiential. Maybe the best way to explain what I mean is, is what it doesn't mean. In Matthew 7, when Jesus says, many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not work these miracles in your name? Let me read it. Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And the omniscient Christ is not speaking of a lack of knowledge. Clearly, he means more than, I was not aware of who you were. You will come to know the truth. You will come to know the truth. You will come to have the mind of Christ. And for those who abide in his word, notice the connection. How do you come to know Jesus more? Abide in his word. How do you come to better understand his mind, who he is and what he would have of you? Abide in his word. Why do we spend so much time on Sunday mornings studying God's word? Because we believe this. The way we come to know God better, more fully, is we abide in his word. Knowledge. And that knowledge is not an end in itself, but it leads to freedom. Point B, freedom. And the truth will set you free. Now, what does Jesus mean here by freedom? And and this is precisely... The point he clarifies for these Jews, they helpfully misunderstand, and so Jesus clarifies, as they say, they've not been enslaved to anyone, which it's hard to think of a regional power in the area that the Jews weren't enslaved to. Now, it's possible they actually understand what he's saying, because it seems kind of preposterous. And just the Old Testament relates how many people they're enslaved to. And they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Jesus Point one here is not, this is not geopolitical freedom. This is not geopolitical freedom. Coming to faith in Jesus and abiding in his word does not guarantee you will have geopolitical freedom. The New Testament is written to people who are slaves, some of them. And, and Paul doesn't say, Christ has set you free. No, he says, honor your earthly masters. Christ has set you free. He does say that in Galatians and he makes it clear he's not talking about geopolitical freedom. There are people who've come to Christ who remain in bondage, who remain in prisons, who remain slaves of men. 
That does happen. That's not the freedom he's speaking of. The freedom he's speaking of, he says clearly, is freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from slavery to sin. And again, this gives some insight into a characteristic of saving faith. Because this is only good news for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For those who would like to be freed from slavery to sin. Jesus says you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. They say we've never been slaves to anyone. And Jesus makes it clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what he's talking about, is slavery to sin. What does that mean? Now, we use in the West the language of addiction. But what we mean by addiction, I think, is pretty close to what Jesus means here by slavery. Um, we, We take sins and turn them into addictions which makes them a medical problem. And, and the biblical imagery most commonly used is one of actual slavery. So what we're talking about first and foremost is moral depravity, moral depravity or enslavement. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the way you're a slave to sin is you love it. And that's where I think the picture of addiction makes sense. We know that people who are, give themselves to various drugs do so willingly, gladly, They love their master. They love their drug of choice. Even as they may hate it, what brings them back to it again and again is desire, love, craving. And in that sense, Jesus says we are slaves to sin. And again, this helps to explain what John has written earlier in this gospel. In John chapter 3, and we made a big point of this when we were here, why is it people don't come to Christ? Is it because they've yet to hear a credible argument? Is it because they've got legitimate and heartfelt questions? This is the judgment, John three nineteen to 21. Light has come into the world. People loved, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why, why is it that people love the darkness rather than the light? We're told why, because their works are evil. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone whose works are evil loves the darkness. That's the type of slavery we're talking about, the slavery of your affections and your desires. It's a willing slavery. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is another reason why the, the people that love the darkness have no interest in being freed from slavery to sin. They love the darkness. They don't want to be freed from it. Christ is saying those who have saving faith abide in his word. They come to know the truth, and the truth sets them free from slavery to sin. Moral depravity. Moral depravity. And there's also, don't miss this, familial alienation. Familial alienation. I'm going to move quickly. Jesus says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And and, and in short, and we'll look at this more next week, so I'll move quickly. What he's saying is this. People who are slaves to sin don't remain in God's house because they're not sons, they're slaves. They're going to insist, no, 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 Abraham's our father. And then they're going to insist, actually, God's our father. And Jesus is saying, slaves don't remain in the house forever. That's the point. While you remain a slave to sin, you are no child of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Slaves don't remain in the house forever. That's what he's saying. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Which brings us to point three here, adoption. It's implied, but I think it's clearly implied. What he is offering and setting you free is you can now actually be part of God's household. You can be his sons. And it's clear in this text, sonship is functional. How does he know whose sons they are? The works they do. Because Satan's a liar and they're lying about him. Satan's a murderer. They're trying to kill him. That's how he knows what family they belong to. If they were sons of Abraham, he says, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. So now you can be freed from slavery to sin. You can be a member of God's household by implication as his son or as his daughter, carrying out the fruit, the works of your father, God. Which, of course, makes sense why such freedom would be necessary as a prerequisite. If sonship and daughtership to God is primarily functional, then, of course, you would need to be freed from your slavery to sin before you could, in practice, be a son or daughter of God. That's what Jesus is offering. Point one, Jesus is the son who has the authority to free slaves. We'll pick more of this next week, but just Jesus is the only one who has the power. to. We have so many self-help programs, addiction programs, dealing with slavery to sin. And I'm not saying those things can't be helpful in the right place, but fundamentally freedom from slavery to sin is found in Christ only. Galatians 5, 1 and 2. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Point two, he liberates, those he liberates are now truly free to obey God. What does freedom in Christ mean? It means freedom to obey God. Turn to Romans 6, close here. Pastor Daniel, when he introduces our baptism service, may, may read from here. I don't know where he's going to read from, but I will. Um, Paul makes this point emphatically in Romans 6. Look at the language that Paul speaks in verse 15. We'll, we'll close here. We will not sing our closing song, but we will close here. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's, I think, what Jesus says when he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become free agents? No. Have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms. Because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification 
and its end, eternal life. That is the context of, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've been freed to become a slave to righteousness. You're going to be a slave of somebody. The question is, will be of sin leading to death or of God leading to righteousness? Point three, finally, remain in him as he remains in God's house. Don't, don't miss this in John 8. And again, we'll look at this more next week. Jesus tells them, you must, you must remain in my word. The slave doesn't remain in the house. The son remains. And so the imagery is this. Because the son remains in the house, if you want to stay in the house, remain in the son and in his word. If we remain in Christ, where do we stay? We stay in the house. We abide in him. Jesus tells people who've just come to fledgling professions of faith this truth. We, we need to be willing to say these things as well. Not the only thing we say to someone who makes a brand new profession of faith. But if we're uncomfortable telling someone who's just said, you know, you know I, think, I, think, I think I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Fantastic, wonderful, amen. And you must continue to believe and you must continue to abide in his word and you will become to know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's, that's what Jesus says. That is the hallmark of saving faith and true discipleship. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, I pray that no one will be self-deceived in this room, that there be no one who, who thinks they believe but believes like these Jews in Jerusalem, but that you would cause our faith to grow, that we would dwell and abide and remain in your teaching that we would grow in knowing you, that we would grow in our freedom from slavery to sin, that we would grow in bearing out the image and the works of our Father, God in heaven. Oh, Lord God, if there is not a heart here who has such faith, I pray that you would gift it, that you would open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, that you would put in our hearts a love greater than the love of our sin, a love for your son and his righteousness, that our will would be to do your will, and that we would not rest until we have confidence in whom we are believing, confidence that he will hold us fast. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace coffee the donuts are in the gym we will rejoice the testimony of god working life and salvation and faith in two hearts this morning god bless you are dismissed